0: Welcome to Fertile Minds Radio. Here you'll find wisdom for your fertility journey and beyond, chosen specifically to help you trust your body and elevate your spirit so you can enjoy the process. Join us and see what a fertile mind feels like. Now your host, Hilary Talbot Rowland.
1: Hey there, welcome back to the show. I'm super pumped to be bringing you this jam-packed episode on gestational diabetes with Lily Nichols. If you are a regular listener to the show, you might recognize her from episode 31, where we talked about her new book, Real Food for Real Pregnancy, which was a must read for all of those of you trying to get pregnant and for those of you who already are. It was also our number two episode in terms of downloads, so you know it's good. If you didn't listen to it, feel free to binge that on the back of this episode because it is packed with dietary education that you can start applying immediately. So not only is Lily a devoted mom, a stellar author, and a registered dietitian-nutritionist with a flair for interpreting scientific data and how it applies to the modern-day woman, she also has superpowers when it comes to educating and helping women learn how to prevent and or manage their gestational diabetes. So I just had to have her back on. So welcome to the show. I'm so happy to be back. Nice. I'm happy to have you because I feel like we touched on this a little bit before. And then I did get a couple emails from people saying, hey, can you do a whole episode about that? So I'm glad that we found the, the space and time to connect.
0: Yeah, likewise. I, I love talking about this stuff. I can do it in my sleep. So <laughs> <laughs> perfect. All right. So if you the listeners are tuning
1: in, chances are they've either just gotten a diagnosis or they're afraid of getting it because a friend had it or they have diabetes in their family. And I feel like when you type in gestational diabetes in Dr. Google, you get a couple different answers and definitions, but I love yours. So can you please describe what gestational diabetes is and is not?
0: Yeah. So gestational diabetes is a type of diabetes that develops during pregnancy and or is first diagnosed during pregnancy, which can mean different things. But essentially, it means that your blood sugar is elevated above where we'd normally expect it to be during pregnancy. A third possible way to define it is carbohydrate intolerance during pregnancy, because that's essentially what's happening (laughs) if your body is having trouble processing carbohydrates and thus resulting in high blood sugar.
1: All right. That's the one that I love because I see that happen a lot where, you know, maybe somebody is quote unquote eating healthy, they eat a lower carb diet, and maybe their body, maybe it's their gut biome, or they're just not so used to digesting carbs. And then they have this mega test with all this glucose thrown at them and they fail it. Yes. Because they're not used to digesting carbohydrates. And so maybe they don't do so well with, what is it, 150 milligrams of glucose they throw at you during that traditional test?
0: It, it depends on the screening method. It's it's either a 50 gram and 100 gram test or a single test of 75 grams of glucose. But yeah, a lot, because like a Coca-Cola, a can of Coke has like a little less than... 40 grams of sugar. So it's a lot of sugar all at once. Right. And people feel awful
1: when they do that test. At least that's how they report back to me of like, why do I have to do that? And is there like another way around that? And I remember you talking about how the practice that you were in kind of where you got your superpowers (laughs) of managing gestational diabetes. You guys have a totally different way of going about screening and looking for it. Can you talk to the listeners about that?
0: Yeah, we used sort of a hybrid approach. Now, the clinic I was in was in Los Angeles, and the perinatologist who ran it, um, both of us actually worked for the California Diabetes and Pregnancy Program, and they follow um, stricter diagnostic standards for gestational diabetes than most of the rest of the United States. So we did a screening at first trimester for everybody with a test called hemoglobin A1C or just A1C. It's a very simple blood test, doesn't need to be done fasting, you don't have to drink glucose. You're just seeing where a person's average blood sugar was over the last two to three months approximately. And if you do this during the first trimester, that actually reveals if there were any underlying blood sugar issues going on pre-pregnancy. And we know that women who have a high A1C, they have over a 98% chance of failing a glucose tolerance test, meaning they're going to develop gestational diabetes if they don't already have some sort of blood sugar issue going on. Typically, there's a blood sugar issue going on if your blood sugar has been running high um, even before pregnancy, right? So it's actually undiagnosed pre-diabetes that we're finding in the first trimester. So I would say probably 75 or so percent of our clients were diagnosed um, by first trimester A1C. And then if they passed, then we would recheck them at the typical 24 to 28 week window with a glucose tolerance test and, and see if they have developed any issues. Because later in pregnancy, based on placental hormones, weight gain, and some other factors, um, some women do develop like true gestational diabetes where it's a matter of like placental hormones throwing off insulin resistance and thus resulting in high blood sugar. So we didn't wanna miss those clients as well. But that was, you know, a much smaller percentage than who we caught in the first trimester. I love that because you guys are actually
1: screening way before where I feel like if you fail that test really badly. You know, and it's in that traditional window of you know, was it twenty-four to twenty-eight weeks yep. or twenty to twenty-four? Twenty-four to twenty-eight. Yeah. You know, your baby's been like bathing in glucose for the first right, right, <laughs> almost two trimesters. <laughs> like, so your your ability to back way up and and maybe write that ship is huge by just looking at it early.
0: Exactly, and the test is completely non-invasive, and then you know, you can do it right with the first trimester blood work. And then you have something to act on. You know what I mean? You have two thirds of your pregnancy, uh, to get a handle on it. And for some women it's, it's really annoying. You know, you don't, nobody wants to get any sort of a diagnosis, but at the same time, for most women, you know, it's it's a diet and lifestyle thing. And that's something that you can be proactive about rather than waiting until it gets so severe that and that most of your pregnancy has passed where you feel all this, you know, guilt for not having known about it and you know, worry that there's only, you know, maybe ten weeks or so, twelve weeks of your pregnancy to do anything about it. I mean, it it is really beneficial to know early on and and to be proactive.
1: And I also feel like that could be huge for preconception. So, for all of those people trying, especially in the realm of like unexplained infertility, um, you know, if you're pre diabetic, you're absolutely going to have a harder time falling pregnant because of the way that insulin interacts in the ovaries, even, right? And insulin resistance.
0: And not only that, but we now have data. There was a big Stanford study that showed a higher risk of congenital heart defects among infants of mothers who had elevated blood sugar in the first trimester that were below the diagnostic criteria for gestational diabetes. So we're seeing that even mildly elevated blood sugar is an issue. And, you know, ideally, it's always ideal to like know months and months before you're even pregnant. But at the very least, if we can find out early in pregnancy, um, we might be able to to impact those, those rates. And currently, you know, diabetes and prediabetes are at Epidemic levels. The Journal of the American Medical Association found that something like forty-nine to fifty-two percent of U.S. adults have either diabetes or prediabetes, and most of them are undiagnosed. So this does carry over into you know women of reproductive age as well.
1: Well, and also what we pass on, which we'll get into in a little bit, because we've got a couple more questions about AONC. So traditionally A1C measures how stable your blood sugar has been and your ability to use insulin two to three months prior to that, right? So that's why it's such a great indication with the cutoff of diabetes being 5.7, I think. But when you're pregnant, because the uh, red blood cell turnover is happening so quickly, isn't that like sped up? Isn't that more of an indication of what's been happening in the last couple weeks versus the last three months?
0: Yes. Yeah. So later in pregnancy. A1C as a diagnostic measure isn't reliable, actually, because A, your blood is naturally diluted. You have more fluid in your system overall. And then the um, quicker turnover of red blood cells. So when your red blood cells aren't sticking around as long, they're not in contact with glucose as long, which results in a lower A1C reading. So... In fact, if your A1C has not gone down later in pregnancy, that's kind of a warning sign (laughs) that something's going on. We typically do see A1C go down. Um, There are some uh, gestational diabetes practitioners, docs, who will actually use A1C, like in-office A1C on a weekly basis to monitor, have an additional checkpoint for monitoring changes in A1C so they can see if it's trending down or up. But as as a matter of like diagnosing gestational diabetes at twenty four to twenty eight weeks or something, it's not a, a reliable marker.
1: Okay, so we want to use it in preconception and in the first trimester, correct? And then after that, we want to look at blood sugars, which I absolutely think is a, an important idea to share with the patient that they can empower themselves to like start creating a log if they think that there's any problem or any chance with them having that? Because that's an easy at home finger stick, right?
0: Yeah, you can get a glucometer over the counter or some uh, providers will even write you a prescription for it, even if you don't have gestational diabetes. And you can monitor your blood sugar at home. First thing in the morning is your fasting blood sugar. And then you can do one to two hours after meals to get an idea of how your body responds to specific foods. Okay, so
1: I'm going to create a little PDF calendar to track meals, similar to what you have in your book. She has this great example of how to track that so you can present it to your provider. Um, Because I think any provider that was presented with like, hey, I've been tracking this and look what's happening, especially if you're borderline on that first glucose test, um, or if your A1C was, you know, borderline as well in the first trimester, would be very happy to receive that information and feel much more comfortable about the possibility of not intervening with insulin, right?
0: Yes, that and you can kind of, if you've been diagnosed by a glucose tolerance test, and you feel like your results maybe don't reflect the reality of what's going on in your body, you can kind of double check you know, if that, if that diagnosis was accurate or not because there are always chances of false positives and false negatives. So um, I actually like to have people compare it to their blood sugar numbers to gestational diabetes goals and then also what's observed in uh, non-diabetic, non-overweight pregnant women. Because even those thresholds are different. (laughs) Blood sugar, blood sugar actually naturally trends about twenty percent lower during pregnancy than outside of pregnancy. So the the goal blood sugar numbers and then what's observed in pregnant women are both like lower than any of the outside of pregnancy diabetic blood sugar goals.
1: Okay, so just for our, I mean, in all of this information is certainly available in her book, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. But what is What are the acceptable levels for fasting and non-fasting blood sugars in pregnant
0: and non-pregnant women? So the gestational diabetes goals are less than 90 milligrams per deciliter for fasting. And post-meal, it depends on when you check, but most practitioners uh, suggest less than either 120 or 130 post-meal. I usually target for less than 120 by two hours post-meal. For non- pregnant people, they recommend fasting of less than a hundred and post-meal numbers of less than 140. So you can see those are like 10 to 20 points different than pregnancy goals.
1: Okay. So that was what you were talking about, how they're naturally about 30% lower. And is that because of the nutrient partitioning that's happening in a pregnant woman?
0: We don't know exactly why it's happening. Um, It seems all we know is what we observe in pregnant women who don't have any signs of diabetes. Fasting blood sugar levels actually trend in the 70s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, and post meal numbers typically trend below 100. So we just naturally see lower blood sugar levels. We don't entirely know why. It could be the hemodilution that we talked about. So the blood is just more dilute, so the sugar isn't as concentrated. It could be something related to nutrient partitioning. So in late pregnancy, your body preferentially goes into like a fat burning state. In a typical pregnancy, your body is in an anabolic state in early pregnancy where you're you're attempting to accumulate body fat to later break down and fuel the baby in the latter part of gestation. Um, Which kind of explains that first trimester feeling like bloated and puffy and icky and like craving carbs and all those things that tend to um, be associated with putting on, you know, extra fat. And then in late pregnancy, your body taps into those fat stores. So um, blood sugar naturally is lower. Ketone levels are naturally higher, which is a sign of using more body fat. And your body is literally trying to shunt as many nutrients to your baby as possible. I mean, there's a there's a physiologic reason that women are more insulin resistant in this stage of pregnancy. It's just that outside of the case of gestational diabetes, typically your your body is able to adapt um, by pumping out more insulin. That's natural. A two to threefold increase in in insulin production is typical in late pregnancy to keep your blood sugar at lower levels. When something in that process goes Awry, either insulin resistance is too high, your pancreas can't produce enough insulin, maybe there's some sort of pre-existing issue that's, you know, um, uh, worsening either of those things, then you have gestational diabetes.
1: Okay. I think that's really helpful to understand that, that there's some natural fluctuation so that women can understand why their blood sugars might be very different um, pre and post-conception. And that's so interesting about how the body is so smart to just build, 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 and shunt everything to the baby away from mom. Which probably also explains why you're so fatigued and feel like crap in the <laughs> beginning. <laughs> yes, yeah. There's
0: a there's there's a lot going on. I mean, there's changes in your your thyroid. Significant changes in your thyroid during pregnancy, especially in uh, the first trimester, that they. believe is related to the development of nausea. um, And on some level, it's related to shunting iodine and thyroid hormone to the developing fetus, which is really important for brain development. Same thing within late pregnancy, the burning of more fat and the development of ketosis, your body is sending more fatty acids to your baby, more essential fats, and literally ketones provide about 30% of a fetal brain's energy needs. So the, all these things are like they're working for us on purpose. You might just feel a little bit different than than usual, but there's a there's a physiologic reason for it.
1: Yes, and that I think that's important to note in your Your chapter on this, as controversial as it may be, does such a great job in noting that ketosis is, in fact, a normal state of pregnancy, especially if you want to have um, a labor that progresses on its own, because your body has to go into catabolism. It has to start breaking down to send the message of like, hey, it's time for you to be evicted.
0: Yes. And and furthermore, that's also important for gestational diabetes in particular. You know, one of the risk factors... Or the risks we're concerned about is that a baby could be born with low blood sugar, and this appears to be more common in women who didn't have as tight, as tightly controlled blood sugar as you know, uh, normal <laughs> maintenance of normal blood sugars in pregnancy. So if they were trending high or they were kind of uh, roller coaster blood sugar levels, um, the infant is more likely to be born uh, with hypoglycemia or go hypo- hypoglycemia after birth. And the idea is that. You know, during pregnancy, if your blood sugar levels are higher than normal, there's a a direct line from your blood to your baby via umbilical cord. And so your baby is exposed to higher levels of blood sugar as well. And their pancreas adapts by producing additional insulin to dispose of that glucose by way of usually storing it as, you know, extra fetal body fat. So that's why babies of women with uncontrolled gestational diabetes tend to be born Um, a little bit larger. But at the same time, if their body has been adapted to sort of a sugar metabolism, like high levels of blood sugar, and then the high insulin release, once your baby is born and you cut the cord, that sugar supply suddenly stops. And typical newborn metabolism is that they're actually born in ketosis, and they actually remain in ketosis for at least the first month of life. In exclusively breastfed infants. And so it's actually the biological norm for infants to be really efficient at using fat and ketones for energy. And when they're born as, you know, quote, sugar burners, um, you use up sugar <laughs> very quickly and their and blood sugar can tank, which can be, you know, a medical emergency. So, um, yeah, it's, it's absolutely, again, a physiologic reason that all of these things happen. It's probably even physiologic that many women don't feel like eating during labor. I mean, that further pushes you towards staying in ketosis during that time.
1: Yeah. They get that sweet ketone breath. It's like, you kind of know that they're right around transition. (laughs) (laughs) It's this amazing thing that I've observed, but that makes so much sense as to why breast milk is predominantly fat and why breastfeeding is the best diet ever. Yeah. (laughs) If it's pulling all your fat to give to the baby, who's in
0: ketosis and needs fat. That's that's how your breast milk adapts. Yeah, it's, it, no, it's just fascinating how the whole process works. I mean, breast milk does contain carbs, too. It has a pretty significant um, amount of lactose in it. But just what we observe is that the infants remain in ketosis for at least the first month of life. And I haven't seen studies looking at infants beyond that time point. But even during labor, it was a really interesting study out um, 2016. It was out of Japan. And uh, this is the one that I'm sort of referencing as we're talking about all these things. They followed, I believe it was 60 pregnant, normal, healthy pregnant women. um, And they looked at ketone levels in their blood and then ketone levels in their placenta, ketone levels in cord cord blood and ketone levels in the infants up to one month of life. And and at all time points, um, ketone levels were elevated and they were like, extremely elevated in the placenta. The placenta actually can produce its own uh, ketones. So it's just like beyond maternal levels. And same with the babies, the babies had higher ketone levels than than moms as well.
1: So is that the role that the placenta can play in gestational diabetes? So if you're just taking in all kinds of sugar, does that stop the placenta from making ketones? That's a good question.
0: I don't know. It's so under-researched. I'm just kind of thinking out yeah, loud. It's <laughs> certainly possible. I mean, if we think about just like outside of pregnancy, human physiology, like y- you control whether you're in ketosis or not pretty much by the amount of carbohydrates you're eating or not eating. So Or fasting, which
1: now colostrum makes perfect sense to me that baby has to stay in ketosis. Like I never understood, like, how do they survive off of like until the milk comes in
0: for sometimes 24 to 36 hours? Yeah, they're in ketosis, they're in they're in ketosis. And and colostrum is extremely high fat. It's also extremely high in vitamin A as well. So for that, like all those immunoprotective qualities, and you know, the the beneficial bacteria that are in it. I mean, colostrum is just crazy cool as well. Yeah. It's like a, the,
1: the best inoculation you could ever have, right? Yeah. Um. So if you are also taking in a bunch of sugar and it's not really regulated and you cut that cord and your baby goes hypoglycemic, like, yes, that's absolutely a medical emergency, but let's just think about what happens to us when we've been on a sugar binge and how we feel psychologically and emotionally when we try and come off of sugar? Like, that's essentially happening to your baby. That's a really good point. Yeah. Their first couple of days have to be really jarring. I know I'm like a monster when I, like, after Halloween and I'm like, okay, it's time to stop the sugar binge that <laughs> like I had for 24 hours. Like, I, yeah.
0: it literally takes 72 hours to regulate
1: my mood.
0: Oh yeah. Or, or beyond that. I think I do the same thing come January. There's just so many good holiday treats. And so I feel like every January I'm like, okay, (laughs) wanting dessert after every single meal and between meals is not normal. Have to like reset, have to go back to like, you know, getting more balanced meals, getting enough fat and protein for going dessert. You know, it it takes, it takes a little bit to re-regulate all of that.
1: Absolutely. So all of this that we're talking about ketosis and how it's a naturally occurring thing in pregnancy and in new babies, why is the, even with a diagnosis of gestational diabetes, why is the recommendation of allowable carbs so high?
0: Oh gosh. Yeah. It's a very good question. So I I looked into this heavily because as, as a dietitian, what I was observing in in my clients when I followed the standard recommendations, which by the way is a minimum of 175 grams of carbohydrates per day, no less, because that would be quote dangerous, right? But even in the typical guidelines, uh, you know, a diet of 45 to 65 percent carbs, which equates to over 200, upwards of like over 400 grams of carbs a day, it's extremely high carbohydrate. Oh my god, I <laughs> <And> would die. <laughs> same. (laughs) And so what I was observing in my clients with GD is I would give them this, you know, the standard diet, you know, doing my due diligence as a dietitian, don't want to cause any harm, of course. And there's all these warnings that going low carb would be harmful. And my client's blood sugar would get worse. I mean, when you have, when you quote, have to eat like 45 to 60 to 75 grams of carbs at a meal, there's like not room for other food. <laughs> like they were overfull, they were miserable, their blood sugar was high, they would have a spike in blood sugar and then a crash and be starving at snack time. It just was not a sustainable way for them to eat. And so, for you know, when somebody fails diet therapy, In other words, their blood sugar is is high enough that we consider diet and lifestyle to be ineffective, and then they need insulin or medication to manage their blood sugar. I had to wonder, like, is the diet failing them? Or are they failing the diet? Like, what is going on here? And through a lot of research, I came to the conclusion that it was really the diet that was failing them, and our carbohydrate recommendations are unnecessarily high. So... It took a lot of digging to find where this arbitrary minimum of one hundred and seventy five grams comes from. And I finally found it in this Institute of Medicine document, which is like over a thousand pages, <laughs> um, where they had a, a part about carbohydrates in pregnancy. And so what they do is they take the estimated average requirement for non-pregnant women, which is assumed to be one hundred grams of carbs, Then they add in additional carbs to add for the increased energy requirements of pregnancy. And then they add additional carbs to account for the amount of glucose that's estimated to be required by the fetal brain. And that gives you approximately 175 grams. I think they round it up because the math never checks out perfectly for me. But um, that document contradicts itself like right and left, um, especially when it comes to carbohydrate metabolism. And you know from people who follow a low-carb or ketogenic diet the human body can certainly survive without having the estimated average requirement of 100 grams of carbohydrates per day, right? I mean, there are people who who can do just fine on that. And that's because if you eat adequate amounts of fat and protein and continue eating enough calories, um, your body actually doesn't need carbohydrates to run. You can run off of mainly fat and ketones. So all in all, I think the 175 grams thing is not evidence-based. I think it's all an estimate. And I certainly observe with clients that a lower level of carbohydrates is um, actually advantageous and ideal, especially in the case of gestational diabetes. And then as we've talked about this kind of this whole time, mentioning the ketone thing, the second part of my research into this was looking at like what's the deal with ketones? Like everybody tells you that being in ketosis is dangerous during pregnancy. It's dangerous for your baby. But what I revealed was that a lot of this research was not accounting for the different types of ketosis. So they would be lumping in the like medical emergency state of diabetic ketoacidosis with nutritional ketosis, or they'd be lumping starvation ketosis, which is where a person is literally not eating enough, which is an obvious problem during pregnancy, they'd lump that with, you know, physiologically normal nutritional ketosis. And I just had to wonder, you know, if, if it's a natural state for the body to go into ketosis in late pregnancy, like, are our bodies dumb? You know, like, why why would that happen? And then in infants, like, well, we observe that this happens how could it be harmful so you know just a lot of our medical research a lot of our training of professionals i mean i'm trained as a certified diabetes educator which is a pretty pretty difficult involved certification to get and all we observe all that i was taught in that training as well as my training as a registered dietitian was that ketosis is bad and ketosis is diabetic ketoacidosis there's there's no discussion of the nuance and now that ketogenic diets have become rather popular, I mean, it's almost at the level of like, fad diet status, even though it's, it's not a fad diet, but like, it's at that level where people are like promoting it to, you know, cure all sorts of things and whatever. But the, the benefit of the popularity of ketogenic diets is that people have a better understanding, there's more discussion around what it means to be in ketosis or not, and that there are different types of ketosis, and some are safe and some are not. So um, a diet that's lower in carbohydrates during pregnancy, yes, may result in ketosis, but it's a safe level of ketosis. It's not, it's not diabetic ketoacidosis.
1: Well, and don't you think that so many of those studies that point to it being a problem, they're measuring urine versus blood ketones, which are totally different.
0: Yes, that is another frustration. I, I
1: can feel like I'm in ketosis by those urine strips, like I'm dumping large amounts, and and the scale is not moving. And then I test my blood and it's like barely there. And I'm like, oh, those potatoes I snuck, like I'm not in ketosis anymore.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so that's another frustration as well. that a lot of those studies, and in fact, the first study that was ever to say that ketosis was harmful to infants, they say that it's harmful harmful to um, neurodevelopment. It c- can result in brain damage. Like, this is the warning against it. You can see why I had to, like, do this crazy extensive literature search in order to decide whether or not this was safe or not. Like, you don't want to harm anyone's brain, for God's sakes, right? So... The original study that found that to be a problem was, I think it was either from the late 60s or early 70s. And they um, linked IQ to a single urine ketone check in the hospital at labor and delivery. When you're already in ketosis. Yeah, it's just, it's just useless. It's just one of those things that was completely a, you know, random correlation, not correlation and causation, because we now, you know, we now have a, a... whole another body of evidence decades later, um, that shows that that's not the case. (laughs) But that stuck around. I mean, nobody wants to cause harm uh, to babies. So that's where the original link came from. Wow. Okay. So this is
1: why it's important to know your science and have people in your life that can decipher said science to you if you can't, right? Yes. (laughs) Because I I feel like these are these are things you need to go and know when you're going to go have tough conversations with your providers or advocate for yourself. So we'll make sure that we link to all of these in the show notes. Um,
0: The only way to differentiate whether or not you're at a harmful level of ketosis, meaning a diabetic ketoacidosis state, is to check your blood ketones. And there's actually a lot of blood sugar meters now that, that can also check your ketone levels. You have to buy separate ketone strips. And like blood sugar strips, they're also expensive. But you can invest in those, and you can have them check those. You can show them Chapter Eleven from Real Food for GD. I also cover this topic in not as much detail, but enough to give you the gist on why urine ketone checks are are useless and clinically meaningless. Um, in Real Food for Pregnancy, but um, you can check your blood ketones and show them that they're you know at normal and safe levels. I was spilling large quote large urine ketones for pretty much almost every prenatal visit in the latter part of my pregnancy, unless I had just eaten a bunch of carbs and they're like, Oh, you're dehydrated. Oh, it could be a sign of preeclampsia. Oh. And no, it was physiologically normal. It was nothing to worry about. So as long as you're not starving yourself, and as long as you're not a person who has type one diabetes and you're not taking enough insulin or type two diabetes who requires insulin and also are not taking enough insulin, the odds are in your favor that it's, it's benign, normal, physiologically regular ketosis. That's actually probably involved in normal fetal development. So nothing to worry about. Because I mean,
1: the baby, if you just look at what's happening in that those last few weeks, the baby's putting on a pound a week, right? Yeah. The mom isn't necessarily gaining weight in that time. Like sometimes she's gained all her weight unless she has a bunch of fluid retention that's happening. Like she's like, you know, is my baby developing okay? Because I the scale's not moving. Well, it's more of that nutrient partitioning, it's just yeah. taking from your fat, giving to the baby. It's perfectly natural and normal and supposed to happen that way.
0: Right. Right. I agree. Yeah, I seem to observe a lot of women gain most of their weight in like the second and early third trimester, and then it tends to level out again unless there's fluid retention stuff going on. So You know, you never know everybody's weight gain follows a different pattern, but certainly it's um, not cause for concern if your weight kind of stalls for, for a couple weeks towards the end.
1: Okay. So since I have you all to myself for another 10 minutes or so, and you are like the queen of studies. I remember you talking about a study on pregnant mares because, you know, it's it's hard, you're hard pressed to get studies on pregnant women because it's not exactly ethical. And it made sense to me as to what you were saying about it, because I've seen my, my healthy eater, like low carb people run into problems with this test. And I've had to wonder if some of the reasons why were some of these um, reasons that you talked about in that mare study. Or if it was just like co-contributors of disease, like poor sleep, poor gut biome, things of that nature, which we'll talk about in a minute.
0: But do you remember the study that I'm talking about? Yes, I do. So essentially what they did is they gave pregnant horses a glucose tolerance test. And these horses had been, had been split into two groups and had been eating at different diets. So one of the group of horses was grazing. They called this the fiber and fat diet. And some were supplemented with a twice daily ration of grains. And they called this group, the sugar and starch group. What they found was that the grazing animals, the ones that are eating their natural diet, they consistently failed the glucose tolerance test when the grain fed animals passed. So what I find really interesting about this is if this study had been done in humans, (laughs) they would have concluded that eating more carbohydrates is beneficial to your glucose metabolism. It helps you maintain normal blood sugar. That's what they would have concluded because those were the ones who passed the test. Um, But what's interesting, because it was done on animals and veterinarians sort of assume that what animals naturally eat is what they're naturally meant to eat, (laughs) not trying to over engineer like the quote, perfect diet. Um, They actually recognized that the grain fed animals were exhibiting an abnormal metabolic response then it was interfering with the natural adaptation of glucose metabolism in late pregnancy. So what's interesting about this study, and actually what you also see in the medical research on humans as well, is if you eat a lower carbohydrate diet and your pancreas is adapted to that, your pancreas is not accustomed to pumping out large boluses of insulin consistently. And so it takes a while for your body to adapt back to that so you'll see of you know you'll see a failed glucose tolerance test if somebody is eating very low carb and this has been documented in the medical literature since like the 1960s it's not anything new and i think they dropped they used to actually recommend people carb loaded in like a couple days or a week prior to a glucose tolerance test to get an accurate result whatever that means <laughs> but um, But they dropped that recommendation, I think, because Americans were already eating so many carbs. I mean, the average American is eating like 40, 45% or more of their calories from carbohydrates. Um, And most of them are eating like about 85% of their grains are refined grains. So people are eating like quickly digested sugars and carbohydrates all the time. If you're really metabolically well adapted to that, you should pass a glucose tolerance test. With flying colors. <laughs> I mean, your body should be adapted to that. Um, for the people who are, have been eating low carb, it sort of presents this conundrum on how well you can tr- trust the results of the test and whether or not you should carb load prior to the test. What we know is that there's just going to be a certain percentage of women who are eating low carb who will get a false positive on, on a glucose tolerance test. And you would be able to see this if you start monitoring your blood sugar um, at home after the fact and your blood sugar is like lining up with those normal pregnancy blood sugar levels. Like your fasting is in the 70s, Um, particularly for women who have low fasting numbers, like fastings below 80 milligrams per deciliter. The chances that you actually have gestational diabetes are very, very slim per the literature you do get into some gray area though if you're kind of hovering around gestational diabetes target levels. It's just kind of one of those things where probably better to just play it safe, monitor your blood sugar levels, eat in a way that keeps it well maintained. If you see it start going up, then to you know be even more proactive about what you're doing or talk to your provider. Maybe insulin or medication is needed. But essentially, you know, our, our diagnostic tests, none of them are perfect. There's always going to be some people who fall through the cracks. There's always going to be some false positives. Whether or not you're diagnosed, monitoring your blood sugar at home is just about the only way to know what's happening day to day, right? So I I don't see downsides of this other than it being like obnoxious for people to have a meter, to pay for test strips, to have a place to wash their hands, to time it after meals. Like there is an annoyance factor with it all, pricking your finger. It's just it's obnoxious, um, but the data you get from it can be really, really useful.
1: Yeah, but we would do it as women for weight loss, right? <laughs> like I prick my finger and see <laughs> what's happening. I have huge diabetic risk, like hypoglycemia on one side and diabetic, diabetes two on the other. So that's yeah. also why I do it. But you know, I think that that's way less invasive than the actual test of drinking that sugar and then feeling out of it for you know, the next 12 to 24 hours.
0: I mean, I, yeah, I have a two part blog series. Um, back when I was pregnant with my son, where I talk about my choice to do the glucose tolerance test and my results and what I did with that information and my home, home blood sugar monitoring results. It was, uh, it was very interesting. And the, sh- the short story is that it really confirmed everything I just talked about from that horse's study. You're eating low carb, it's yeah, you're you're pretty likely to fail it.
1: And so can they find that blog? Is that um which is the website your blog is on? Yeah, right that's
0: now? on my site. So uh I'm actually in the process of a rebrand, but it's at nutritionist.com or if you're listening to this later on, it'll be rdn.com And um, I'll send you the links so you could put it in the show notes. Okay. Perfect. We'll
1: put them both there. Um and then I have one more thing that I want to touch on because I feel like it's the most important out of all of this. Uh, and that is really how we affect gene expression, not just in our our children, but in their unborn children and how blood sugar issues might actually affect our children's fertility.
0: <laughs> yeah. So
1: I feel like that's something that isn't talked about a lot, like big babies, you know, shoulder dystonia, you know, mom having type two diabetes, those are all well known risk factors. But now as we start to learn more about epigenetics and methylation, and what that actually does to the genetic copies two generations down the line, I feel like that's sorely highlighted. (laughs) Yes.
0: And that's actually the part that really got me fired up about gestational diabetes was learning some of those statistics. So one that I mentioned quite frequently is that um, children born to mothers with poorly controlled gestational diabetes face a six-fold higher risk for type 2 diabetes and obesity by the time they're teenagers, which is massive. And when you think about sort of the state of affairs with children's health these days, I mean, the rates of type 2 diabetes, the rates of obesity, I feel like most often the blame is laid on poor diet during childhood or inadequate physical activity. And certainly those things play a role, but I think the part that hasn't made it into, you know, popular media is the part about epigenetics. Like what was the environment that this baby was grown in literally in utero and I think a lot of what we're seeing now in children can actually be on some level attributed to an epigenetic effect carrying over from the 80s when our low-fat dietary guidelines went into play. Remember like snack wells, cookies, they were like low-fat. Yeah, yeah, I lived (laughs) off of those. And tortilla (laughs) chips and salsa
1: because there was no fat.
0: Right. (laughs) So all these low-fat, highly refined carbohydrates – you know, high fructose intake. I mean, just the massive intake of like soda and juice and all these sweet drinks and not enough fat for blood sugar stabilization, the demonization of meat and saturated fat. I mean, we've we've ended up with really imbalanced diets with poor nutrient intake and the resulting high blood sugar and weight gain that tends to go along with it. And then we have babies that are literally being marinated in in high glucose levels and their pancreas, pancreas are pumping out high levels of insulin in gestation. I mean, that's what their body is accustomed to. And so we do see, like we see larger pancreas in these babies. We see higher insulin levels. We see more likelihood for hypoglycemia. We see babies that are born, they call it macrosomic. So they have an excessive, they're, They're very heavy, not because they're like exuberantly healthy, which probably would have been the assumption if we were going back like 100 years ago, if you had a big baby, it was like a sign that they had, you know, good fat stores, they they could survive, right? And these days, we're having babies that are literally being born obese. I mean, their body fat percentage is extremely high. There's certainly a, a range of normal with large babies. In fact, I was actually a nine pound baby. Granted, my mom was encouraged to gain 40 pounds during her pregnancy because (laughs) the weight gain guidelines were crazy back then. So she was intentionally eating ice cream to try to pack on the pounds. But nonetheless, I was a nine pound baby that was healthy, didn't have hypoglycemia. I haven't haven't had the resulting issues with blood sugar and weight and whatever. But there is a, a threshold of normal. And there are, you know, extremes and outliers on on weight. And so when we're seeing babies that are like 13 pounds, that, is, that actually isn't like a normal healthy baby, like something is awry. No. Um, and we can typically attribute it to something going wrong with blood sugar and insulin metabolism. And then, you know, as a carryover, as you talk about preconception stuff and fertility, weight is such a difficult conversation, because I feel like, there's like on one hand you have like so much you know fat shaming and this this media like ideal of the human human female form portrayed and all of that is like garbage but we do know that just from the studies like as you tend to get towards higher BMIs especially like beyond 35 and 40 um, the the like higher in the quote obesity categories you do see more macrosomia. You do see more pregnancy complications like gestational diabetes and preeclampsia. And this stuff does have an epigenetic carryover effect on the babies that can last, you know, through their generations and beyond. So quite a few women that I come across with gestational diabetes, probably not the majority, but many do say, you know, oh, my mom had gestational diabetes during her pregnancy. I mean, your blood sugar metabolism is on some level pre-programmed by what you were exposed to in utero. And that has been shown again and again and again in the research. And we just can't continue to like pull the wool over our eyes and pretend that it's not happening. Or even worse, tell women that they need to eat 45 to 65% of their calories from carbohydrates, (laughs) which is only going to worsen it when during pregnancy, like your body is under a massive stress test. It's a huge metabolic test to your body's like metabolic flexibility. Can you handle the stress of growing a new baby, the nutritional demands of growing a new baby, the challenges on your pancreas for producing way more insulin? I mean, can your body adapt to this? I, I think what we're seeing right now with the rates of pregnancy complications, especially gestational diabetes affecting up to 18% of pregnancies, if you adopt the stricter diagnostic standards, well, for a lot of women, our, their bodies are not adapting well. And how much of that is within your control or how much of that is related to epigenetic things from your mother or grandmother, like we don't know. Um, we do know that there are strategies you can implement to help manage that and and mitigate some of those effects because we do see way improved outcomes when blood sugar levels are normalized during pregnancy. And for me personally, um, and you see this in the literature too, I see about a 50% cut in the percentage of women who require insulin or medication to manage their blood sugar when they're given better nutritional advice, real food, low carb, optimize your vitamin D levels and a number of factors. So like we we can do something about it, you know, and that's the part that I feel like, you know, needs to be the, the, the take home message here is that it's not this doom and gloom thing where you have to succumb to statistics, but you do have some some control over it
1: i agree and that's why i wanted to have you back on because i feel like what you're sharing is so valuable i think it sh- you know it should be empowering women that they can take control of this and and i do wonder sometimes like what i see in terms of infertility especially unexplained in um, younger and younger patients i wonder a lot of times if that had to do with their mother's nutrition and what effect that had on their entire endocrine system. So that's a question I'll ask. And oftentimes they did have gestational diabetes or hypoglycemia. Um, And I wonder if that has an effect too on the rising numbers of PCOS, because, you know, that was a human adaptation to famine, right? And so, and, and, you know, an improper regulation of insulin. And so I, it all comes back to food.
0: And just in the same way, gestational diabetes is an adaptation to the the human norm of being exposed to periodic fasting and starvation is that you can still grow a baby if you're exposed to those things, your body preferentially makes you insulin resistant so you're not absorbing all that energy you're sending it to the baby
1: right And I think that's important to remember because people feel like they've done something wrong like they've acquired a disease when really it, their body is trying to do the smart thing for the environment of which it is' it. Exactly. And you can change your environment. So yay, so yes, plan of action start monitoring your A1c and post-meal blood sugars preconception if possible. If not, especially if you're a low carb eater, request that A1C early in the first trimester with your original blood work, if at all possible, so that you are already armed with what's happening. And God forbid, if you fail that test, get in touch with someone like yourself. You have a complete video course on gestational diabetes, right?
0: yes yeah I have I think it's the only online course on gestational diabetes I've <laughs> now been running it for three and a half years um really teaches you pretty much everything you need to know from the food to the exercise to the supplements to the medications and insulin if you do need them and then a whole bunch of I'm always adding content to it so I have like a bonus section and an ask lily section and so there's you know, newer supplements, uh, nutrients that that have been studied a little more, even since my book was released, that can help, especially with things like fasting blood sugar. Um, there's a whole training on fasting blood sugar in there, and then we have a Facebook group associated w- with the course, which is really active and involved. And so, if you're feeling like you can't find support from other people who are going through this. It's, you know, pretty rare to have a friend who's pregnant at the same time as you. It's even more rare to have a friend who's pregnant at the same time as you and also is facing blood sugar issues. And then even if you're in some sort of an online group that, that, you know, is for gestational diabetes, most of them are just touting the same conventional advice. And so you see really unfortunate threads, I guess I would say, of people being like, well, I'm eating my carb allotment of 75 grams of carbs at dinner, and my blood sugar is high. I don't understand what's going on. And then people are like, "Well, you have to keep eating your carbs because if you go low carb, it's going to be a problem, right?" You see, just like this perpetuating misinformation in those places. So, if you want to be in a place where you have, you know, like-minded individuals, um, it's it's really good. I'm in there um, each week answering. Office hour questions as well, so I'm I'm pretty involved in there. So yeah, the course is great. I also have a free video series um, over at realfoodforgd.com as well. If you just want a um, little little intro, deeper intro into gestational diabetes and how to manage it, um, on my site. So
1: and you also do webinars because I stalk your Instagram a little bit. Uh, yeah, and you can find her at Lily Nichols RDN. Um, you have a couple coming up, and those are more around real food for pregnancy, but really kind of the same way just less aggressive right yeah gestational diabetes
0: diet I will be doing I will be doing a webinar on gestational diabetes uh, probably later this fall the webinars I really designed um, because the kind of information that people tend to reach out to me for is well since since having both of these books on the market I find that there's a lot of professionals now who are reaching out to me wanting advanced like advanced training or professional education so I'm putting out uh, continuing education uh, webinars currently we have them approved for dietitians we might venture out into different um, practitioners as well as you can imagine there's lots of hoops to jump through when you get CEUs but um, you know evidence-based webinars that tend to go pretty in-depth they're open to everybody but I'm I'm intentionally speaking to like health professional clients
1: so if you are just love knowledge and your brain loves to eat knowledge, it's a perfect place for you to maybe even become more educated on GD than your obstetrician. Um, so definitely check her out on Instagram. Thank you so much for coming on the show because I know that this has been educational for me. It's given me some things to think about and to delve into some research. So I know it's been educational for our listeners. And thank you for taking such a big part of your life to write these two books, which I feel like should be required reading for any medical school of any kind. Oh,
0: thank you. Some of them actually do have it as required reading now, which just kind of boggles my mind. But um, yeah, I like spending my days like reading on PubMed and Google Scholar and trying to put it into context and make it easy for people to follow. So um, that's my sweet spot. Happy to keep doing it.
1: Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on the show. And thanks for our listeners to tuning in. Without you, our show wouldn't exist. So if you have a topic you want covered, leave us some feedback at ladypotions.com forward slash Fertile Minds Radio. Bye for now.
0: Thanks for listening to Fertile Minds Radio, hosted at www.ladyportions.com, where you'll find past episodes, show notes, and free meditations. If you've benefited from what you've heard, leave a comment or review so it makes it easier for others to find this valuable wisdom. Let's help elevate each other. Thanks for listening.